0: COVID-19, the toll on
1: America. It was hard because I couldn't touch him. I couldn't tell him how much I loved him. When I
2: had a personal issue, I called him, and he helped. He helped me, and he was there for me and my family. I was the one that was holding his hand while he died and not his family.
3: The one thing I want people to know about my dad is how he always put others first, and I can't think him enough for the childhood he gave us and the legacy he left.
1: He just looked at me and he said, Mel, I never knew a love like this before and I love you so much. I lost the love of my life because don't wanted to go get a haircut.
4: We
5: love you, Grandpa. We miss you. And your life will never be forgotten.
4: My dad I was you know, cut short. His life was cut short and robbed of his best golden years. It pained me so much knowing, you know, how much life he still had left.
6: We never thought this would happen to our family, and it did.
2: We can't unsee what we've seen, which is just pure devastation, pain, suffering. It doesn't
4: stop. It doesn't discriminate. People are sick and people are dying.
0: Here is ABC News correspondent Aaron Katursky. Edna Aceto
5: always believed her biggest accomplishment was her family. She raised nine children, lived to see 14 grandchildren, and 10 great-grandchildren. She also worked full-time at Columbia University Presbyterian Medical Center, where she supervised the clerical staff in the emergency room for 40 years. Edna was an avid reader, committed to the crossword, and went to church every Sunday at her parish in Bergen County, New Jersey. This April, she would have turned 90. Last April, she celebrated her 89th birthday in the hospital, Holy Name Medical Center in Teaneck, stricken with you. COVID-19.
1: Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, Mrs.
5: The nurses lifted Happy a plastic sheet so she could hear them sing.
7: Not being with her family was not easy.
5: But Edna was with family. Her daughter-in-law, Michelle Aceto, is the chief nursing officer at Holy Name Medical Center.
7: I have been in the thick of all this, right from the start. I've worked at Holy Name for 30 years, so the first 29 were smooth and then last year it hit.
5: And hit hard. In those early days of the pandemic, Michelle Aceto said things changed minute by minute.
7: We went from that first one or two patients, we went to 18, to a full intensive care unit, Five days later, our engineering department filled us a 36-bed ICU, and that was filled the day it was open. 36 patients on ventilators, and it still wasn't enough.
5: In one 72-hour period, Michelle recalled watching 20 COVID-19 patients die. One of them was her mother-in-law.
7: The decision was made early on that she would not be put on a ventilator, that we would give her comfort and good quality of care at the end of her life and, and not put her through what could have been, you know, a... An uncomfortable last days. So it was really important to me to be there with her while she went through that tra- transition. And I will tell you, it was with comfort and peace that she passed.
5: Her passing might have gone noticed by few beyond her family. But as America mourns the 500,000th life lost to coronavirus, the passing of Edna Aceto touches all of us even though her daughter-in-law bore the brunt.
7: Because of FaceTime and the staff coming in, singing happy birthday to her, her having a piece of strawberry shortcake, you know, just a few days before she died, you know, um, made me feel lucky to be here, to hold her hand, to, you know, help her through the, those last three, few days. Her
5: mother-in-law wasn't the only relative Michelle cared for that week. Her brother-in-law and her sister-in-law were also in her hospital with COVID-19 right down the hall from Edna.
7: Her own daughter, her primary caregiver, was two doors away, maybe 20 feet away. And my sister-in-law was you know, so sick with COVID at that point, she couldn't even get out of the bed to say goodbye to her mother. And I'm sure today that still hurts her to think, should I, could I, would I? But I'm I'm here to tell you that she was so sick, there was no way for her to get out of that bed and walk those 20 feet to say goodbye.
5: Did you sign up for this? This is a lot.
7: Yeah. Nobody knew what this was going to be, but when you sign up for health care, you know that people are going to be sick, and some are going to go home, and some aren't. What was different about this was the volume. People would walk in, I'm not feeling well, I have a fever, and then within hours, they were on a ventilator. It was surreal. It it was surreal.
5: A dozen doctors at her hospital and the chief executive became sick, and the virus killed Jesus Villaluz, her colleague of 27 years.
7: He also was a long-term family member, as we like to call him, here at Holy Name. And, you know, when he was admitted, it it was hard. Everybody knew him.
5: Jesus brought patients, supplies, and a reliable smile to every floor of the hospital.
7: He was a wonderful, wonderful gentleman, and everybody truly loved him. He knew everybody's name, everybody knew his name. So when he came into the emergency room, you could feel the whole place, you know, take pause.
5: Jesus Villaluz was 75 years old when he died of COVID-19.
7: And I have to tell you the day he died was a very, very sad day here at Holy Name.
5: Michelle remembered the nurses and doctors pausing from their hectic work and lining the hallways while his sheet-draped body was wheeled through on a gurney.
7: It was a moment, and only a moment, because we still had all those other patients to take care of. Everybody's shoulders went down. The whole hospital, you could feel it. It took that exasperation breath of, we can't believe we lost him. He was brought to the morgue by his director, and the falls were lined with staff. Everybody applauded for him, and it was probably the most difficult day to watch that for those brief moments.
5: It is hard to imagine a death toll of 500,000 in just one year. We really have no way to visualize it. There are 3,000 names etched on the parapets at the 9-11 memorial. There are 50,000 names inscribed on the Vietnam Memorial. Even Arlington National Cemetery, with its sea of white tombstones over 639 acres, represents 400,000 of the nation's veterans from the last 200 years. In the last year alone, America's death toll from COVID-19 is a half million.
6: We
2: can't unsee what we've seen, um, which is just pure devastation, pain, suffering.
5: Sandra Lindsay is the director of critical care nursing at Northwell Health's Long Island Jewish Medical Center. She is haunted by all of the death from coronavirus. At times, she told us, she still sees the faces of patients in her care who did not make it.
2: In one of my ICUs, there was uh, just a group of African-American men that were in that that pot. And They passed away over different phases of their disease process. But just walking in and seeing all of them in that pod, it it was just very sad for me. And that image has stayed with me.
5: Health workers have witnessed an unfair amount of death during this pandemic. It's why Sandra is so strict about masks and other precautions and why she took the vaccine. You may remember Sandra's name she was the first person in the United States to receive a shot.
2: I've never been so fearful in my life. Um, In my 26 and a half years of nursing, this is the first time I've felt so fearful about going to work. And so, yes, um, what I have seen, what I've gone through, what we still continue to go through um, on the front lines have definitely um, factored into my decisions to be extra extra careful
5: how have you been able to process all of that suffering and all of the death that you've witnessed
2: you know it, it's very difficult it's um, some days are harder than some I learned transcendental meditation which has been helping a lot but it's it's incredibly difficult
5: have there been days when you just broke down
2: yeah um, earlier on um, in the pandemic some of my um, critical care attendants were on 60 minutes. When they spoke and I saw images of my ICU, I just could not hold it together. And I remember um, texting my team and, you know, the, the song that came to mind then was um, We Will Rise Again um, by Audre Day. And I just found the song on YouTube and sent it out to my team um, with the tears emoji, and said, you know, we will rise again. And I truly do believe that.
5: With heavy hearts, we try to summon that same spirit of hope that propels critical care nurse Sandra Lindsay as we mark this most unwanted milestone of 500,000 American deaths. Today, Dr. Anthony Fauci told us it did not have to be this bad.
0: We've done worse than most any other country, um, and we're a highly developed, rich country.
5: He cited the disparate responses of each state instead of a unified approach. It was just bad. It is bad now. I think these numbers are so stunning. They are stunning indeed, and they laid bare the disproportionate impact of the virus on low-income, minority, and indigenous communities. That's especially evident in South Dakota. ABC's Trevor Alt is there.
8: In every sense, South Dakota is wide open. The state spread out across sprawling prairies, loosely bound by lonesome highways that stretch beyond the horizon. And yet even here, COVID-19 has run rampant.
1: The COVID vaccine, it's
2: really important that they stay at the right temperatures.
8: Molly Longbreak is the infection control nurse for the Cheyenne River Sioux Tribe. For a year, she has been face-to-face with the carnage this virus has caused her reservation. And today, she's taking vaccine doses on the road. So we're going to Cherry Creek, Cherry Creek. which is how far away?
1: Um, it's about 60, 65 miles. 65 so miles
8: yep. to give the shot to 10 people. Yep. Is
1: that right? Yep. We, we are taking um, enough to do 20. Just um, hopefully we can get some more people yeah. lined up. Try and, to convince them while you're there. Yep. Okay, now we head out.
8: The Cheyenne River Reservation is home to about 12,000 people, but it stretches more than 4,000 square miles and there is only one hospital. So if you're a healthcare worker and you want to get this community vaccinated, you're going to have to come to them. Of course, before you're allowed in, you'll need to answer a few questions. Uh, You guys have any symptoms of COVID? No. Last April, despite pushback from the state government, the tribes of South Dakota set up checkpoints like this one on highways leading into reservations. Thank you. Out of curiosity, do you what if somebody didn't have a reason to come in? Do you turn them away? Yes. You do? At the end of a dirt road miles from cell service, we arrive at the Cherry Creek Clinic, typically staffed with one person to care for the entire town. They're not strangers. They very much are not strangers. With no general stores or pharmacies nearby, the clinic serves as the only place for things like aspirin or Pepto-Bismol, and today, the Moderna vaccine.
2: So you can
5: just have a seat right here.
8: The first patient is Opal Morrison. She's afraid of shots, but showed up at the urging of her children.
1: So I have a weak immune system, and I
4: get sick really badly. They don't like it.
8: Of course. So they so have they been encouraging you to get the vaccine?
4: They encourage me, but I encourage them to come up here. But they're scared.
8: We watched Opal make the walk back home. As inside, her spouse received the second shot of the day and waited a few hours before the third patient, June Littleshield, arrived for her appointment. June didn't need coaxing for her shot. She'd already caught the virus months before and spent weeks in the hospital. She still can't taste or smell anything.
2: It's very scary. It sounds scary. I, I, don't, I don't wish it upon anybody.
8: <laughs> yeah, I believe it. I'm sure that that was tough for you and your family. Yeah. Uh, And then you finally made it out. Yeah. I'm sure that they were were you afraid that you might not.
2: Well, there was a couple of times when I panicked and I couldn't breathe and I didn't know if I was going to come out of it or not.
0: June
8: was the last patient to get the shot that day in Cherry Creek, meaning Molly and her team traveled almost an hour to administer three doses. This is a long way to go. this is a long day and a big full team to give the vaccine to two or three people maybe a few more
1: yeah. is it worth it? It is definitely worth it it's, you know, one person vaccinated is is a huge accomplishment for us One death is one death too many and we've already lost people from the reservation and it's it's very difficult and saddening. I mean,
8: Molly is speaking from personal experience. Her mother, Donna Ray Peterson, is one of the now more than 500,000 Americans who have lost their lives to COVID 19. Donna Ray became infected in the fall, around the time South Dakota had the worst coronavirus death rate in the entire world. She had dedicated her life to working in cultural preservation for the tribe. And now, Molly, in her own way, is doing the same thing. With losing your mother, Is that driving you even more? I guess in a way it is because
1: experiencing the loss personally of somebody so close to me, you know, I wouldn't want anybody else to experience that. And nobody wants that on any level, but, you know, experiencing that because of this virus firsthand has, it just, you know, hits a little closer to home.
8: And because of these extensive efforts from Molly and other healthcare workers, the Cheyenne River Sioux Tribe has already administered almost 4,000 vaccine doses. The scars from the pandemic now stretch across every corner of South Dakota. Though beyond the reservations, state leaders have taken little action to prevent it. Governor Kristi Noem has never instituted a mask mandate or any other restriction, citing her commitment to freedom.
7: We are not and will not be the subjects of an elite class of so-called experts. We don't shun people who think for themselves.
8: Last summer, hundreds of thousands of bikers rumbled into the Sturgis Motorcycle Rally. Most attendees I talked to then told me they knew about the virus, they just weren't scared of it.
5: I don't care about the COVID.
8: And even though a surge followed that rally, just as health experts feared it would, many South Dakota residents are unwavering in their preference for freedom over everything. The fact that the state was open was was a lifesaver. Stephanie Vaughn and her father, John Foster, co-owned the Depot, a pub in Mitchell, South Dakota, where the town just voted down a mask mandate. They say they don't have anything against masks, but they avoid wearing them and so do most of their customers. Yeah. So you think that the lack of regulations in
3: South Dakota saved your business? I would have to say so. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yes. Yeah, yeah, I think so.
8: I mean, some of these states where they've been shut down for over a year now. You know, um, I don't know how they're going to recover. Just up Main Street at Cherry Bee's Floral, owner Dick Anderson says he also almost lost his business, but he takes a different stance on masks. It, it's, it's just
4: basically, a, it's a humorous nudge kind of, but it's something I strongly believe in. Just wear it, it's it's not that big a deal. Um, put it on and keep us safe, and that's kind of where I think we need to Do you to get, get any pushback on that? Um, Yes, you can get push off. I've had people come in and go, well, I don't wear masks and um, I don't want to wear masks. And I, I'm
8: not a policeman, so I'm not going to police it. But now a year into this pandemic, South Dakota appears to have at least somewhat turned a corner. Infection rates are down and the state has been vaccinating its residents more quickly than almost anywhere else in America. Outside of the tribal community, more than 16% of those eligible have already received at least one shot, about 4% higher than the nationwide average.
1: I think uh, this is uh, seared into the memories of uh, pretty much every South Dakotan. We always get inquiries about, hey, when is my turn? Dr. Shankar
8: Kura is the vice president of medical affairs for Monument Health, overseeing the vaccine rollout in essentially the entire western portion of the state.
1: We're basically giving away everything we get. And uh, so roughly we used to get anywhere from 3,000, it varies, 3,500 vaccines, and we just give them away as soon as we get them.
8: If you received 10,000, do you think you'd be able to, you have the infrastructure in place to handle that? Absolutely. And these successes, like any we've seen since this virus took hold, have been built upon the tireless labor of compassionate healthcare workers. Workers like Molly Longbreak, deterred by neither fear nor tragedy, knowing the only way to survive is to survive together. We are, as you would say, um, we're all relatives, all my relations. So in one way or another, we're all relatives.
5: ABC's Trevor Alt in South Dakota. And coming up, we'll take you to the state that has experienced more coronavirus death than any other. When this ABC News special, COVID-19, The Toll on America, continues.
7: Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times best-selling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television
4: producer.
5: What President Biden called a truly grim, heartbreaking milestone of 500,000 dead of coronavirus in the United States, he marked at the White House, leading the nation in a moment of silence and reminding us that the dead represent more than numbers. They are, he said, people we knew.
2: As we acknowledge the scale of this mass death in America, we remember each person and the life they lived. They're people we knew. They're people we feel like we knew. Read the obituaries and remembrances. The son who called his mom every night just to check in. The father's daughter who lit up his world. The best friend who was always there.
5: President Biden at the White House. He noted that more lives have been lost to this virus in the United States than in any other nation on Earth. And no state has been hit harder than California. ABC's Alex Stone takes us to one part of South LA County now where they're trying to show the rest of the state how to vaccinate quickly and efficiently.
0: This, Aaron, is a convention center here in Long Beach, a mass vaccination site, and it's silent. No cars lined up, and that's actually a good thing because the city says it's given out everything it's got. Long Beach is being hailed here in California as a city that has done it right. The first to begin vaccinating teachers and school staff when the federal government gives this city vaccine, it isn't holding on to ration it out. It's putting it into arms immediately.
7: It's a pleasure to be here with you to talk about a major milestone in our mission to vaccinate every eligible person in Long Beach.
0: Dr. Anissa Davis is a city health officer here, with the exception of holding back some second doses, unlike neighboring cities that are allocating only certain amounts to give out every day to keep sites open. Long Beach gives it all out at once, and then it waits, even if it means shutting everything down. It's a push that gets its momentum from Mayor Robert Garcia.
6: I think the one thing, decision that we made early on on vaccines is when all the vaccinations came in and, and health department started, started separating out, we made the decision to just go immediately and not overplan the vaccines for the course of the next two or three weeks and, 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 and th- think about, oh, when are we going to run out, and so we got to only do this amount of day until we run out we went immediately and said, you know what? Let's run out. Let's like do as many as we can tomorrow and the next day and go as fast as possible. And so while maybe a riskier strategy, uh, it allowed us to vaccinate people much faster, which is why we were the first city in the state to start vaccinating food workers. We were the first city in the state to start vaccinating teachers and educators. We're the first jurisdiction to start doing our community college. Uh, We did all of our nursing homes before most folks because we just went and went versus um, Uh, You know, focusing on a very bureaucratic plan for the next, you know, three weeks to a month, we we went fast.
0: Mayor Garcia and I sat down recently at City Hall to talk about what he's doing in his city. First of all, Long Beach is unique. It has its own health department separate from L.A. County, so it does what it wants without L.A. County telling it what it has to do.
6: You know, we've got to wake up every morning. I certainly do, and I think about from a vaccine perspective, we obsess about it. How many folks can we save today? I mean, a vaccination is someone's life, in my opinion. When a vaccination goes into someone's arm, that is a literally life saving event for that person or that person's family.
0: And he knows that all too well. Mayor Garcia has a very personal reason for his drive to rid the city of COVID. During this pandemic, his mom and his stepdad were two of the 500,000 who have died from the virus. Mr Mayor, tell me about your mom and your stepdad.
6: I mean, it's, it's been a really obviously a hard year, um, but I think she has been, you know, she especially has been kind of there with me all along, kind of guiding me. Uh, from a perspective where she was a she was a healthcare worker, I mean, she was a nurse. So I feel like she prepared me for this moment in many ways. I grew up in hospitals and clinics, and around doctors and around nurses, and around her being very strict about what we you know what we could do and being careful and listening to, to, to the doctors. And and my stepdad's kind of strength has also kind of I think helped uh, us get through this period of time. I mean, they were great people. Uh, my mom was an immigrant. I'm an immigrant, and I think she lived the American dream and um and tragically uh like a lot of essential workers and a lot of healthcare workers um you know she got taken away because of this pandemic
0: how personal is your loss uh, of losing your mom and your stepdad to what is going on and how you're fighting this in the city right now
6: well I, i think it's very connected actually i think that um i mean there's no question that losing my parents impacted the way i govern the city like there's no question I was already leading up to when COVID began, and I mean, it's been, it's been such a long time. I mean, we've been doing this for a year um, plus. And looking back, I think about early on, I, her advice, and I remember her going to work with her um, PPE and being very careful, and we were very careful as a family. Uh, and then when the, when, when the tragedy stuck, and then they were both tested positive uh, and, and, and went to the hospital. Um, that also impacted kind of my viewpoint as to how seriously we got to take this. And honestly, during those summer months, when um, early on in the pandemic that, that you, you know, when, you know, businesses, we were making decisions about closures and about economic impact, and I was getting a lot of pushback. And I, I think that kind of, you know, those those deaths, really strengthened me. And so I actually, I, I feel like I came out a stronger person and with more, um, you know, do, doing the right thing really had never been easier. So it just felt that that uh, it's so easy to do the right thing. And that's because of, I think, both of my parents' kind of legacy of of, of the loss. And um, so that has helped me become a, a better mayor, even, even in the, this kind of like tragic moment.
0: Do you think about them when you're opening up a vaccination site, when you are going in and, and talking to those who have been impacted, are, are they on your mind?
6: Uh, every single time, I mean, in fact, uh, I remember when we gave out the very first vaccine, and I hadn't realized it. we went, the first vaccination was gonna be done at a hospital, and I was on my way there, and I realized it was a hospital where my mom died. And, uh, you know, it was a memorial here in, in the city, and we got there, and I was ready to go on to, to, to speak, and I saw the first nurse uh, get his shot. It was the first very vaccine we are doing in the city. And I'm thinking, you know, my mom would have been one of the first getting her vaccine, because she was obviously in this category. So that was pretty emotional for me but it also brought me like immense joy
0: and today it's that emotional connection leading mayor garcia's efforts here it doesn't come without controversy from businesses who have fought things like wage increases for grocery store workers here during covid but even more conservative areas of california are looking at long beach as a model for a city that has created its own health department and what it's able to do the city now vaccinating non-residents who work here all part of Mayor Garcia's push to lead in the response in memory of his parents. Aaron.
5: ABC's Alex Stone. As staggering a number as it is, a half million deaths is only part of our coronavirus story. For every life lost, there are relatives and friends left scarred. For many of them, the pain is not going away. They're holding on to their grief in a troubling way, as ABC's Sherry Preston tells us.
9: Aaron Sharonda Johnson is still recovering from the day last summer that her 62-year-old father died of COVID. She wasn't allowed into the hospital room to say goodbye, and she remembers it as one of the toughest things she's ever done. It was hard because I
1: couldn't touch him. I couldn't tell him how much I loved him or how much he meant to me or how good of a father he was to me and it was difficult because it was the first aha moment I had about how many other people were suffering because on that floor, I could see all of these other patients.
9: Sharonda is an Air Force veteran who has actually counseled others when their loved ones passed away. When it was her father, though, it was so unexpected. It seemed more than she could bear. She says months later, she's still suffering the consequences. If
1: you ask me what triggers me with grief,
9: I could tell you some things right now off the top of my head, and
1: that's only because I have a history of mental health treatment because I'm a combat veteran. But if I wasn't a combat veteran with that experience, I probably wouldn't be able to tell you these things are triggers for me.
9: Sharonda's experience is unique to her, but it's something that many other people have been struggling with throughout the pandemic. And for people of color, it's been even more profound. According to APM Research Lab, when age is taken into account, black Americans are more than twice as likely to die from COVID-19 as compared to white Americans. With so many families losing loved ones, health experts warn of a potential crisis in the African-American community, prolonged grief disorder. ABC News medical contributor Dr. Misha Reja explains what it is.
4: Usually it's symptoms longer than a year after a loved one has died. And the symptoms could be um, persistent depression, anxiety, but they can also have flashbacks, terrible dreams. Um, they can, uh, you know, walk into a room and think that their loved one is there when they're not. And it really impairs their ability to function. It impairs their ability to go back to work, to interact with family. It's just profound, deep sadness.
9: And that profound sadness is compounded, Dr. Reja says, by structural racism, which is defined by the Urban Institute as the historical and contemporary policies Practices and norms that create and maintain white supremacy.
4: Healthcare is a human right, and in order to provide healthcare, we need to address structural racism. So, what that looks like is uh, their ability to one access to medical care, but also things like housing, employment, family support, access to things like social security and Medicare and Medicaid. If they if they lose their jobs, what kind of income support do they get? And um, also then it extends into things like generational wealth. So the ability to buy property and retain your investment and not just live paycheck to paycheck.
9: Something else that compounds the symptoms of prolonged grief disorder is the hesitancy to reach out and ask for help. It could be the stigma that comes with mental illness and depression, but that's not all.
4: It's shown in the literature that having a medical provider that looks like you is huge. So when an African-American person has grief, and they weren't able to bereave in the way that they normally should, um, and they don't have an African American provider, that actually shows to uh, inhibit their ability to process their grief.
9: I asked Sharonda Johnson about that idea that she might be more willing to talk to someone who looked like her.
1: She said that's true. Yes, looks like you, but understands you culturally. That's really that's really the piece um, i would say for anyone you want someone that's going to understand you culturally you know there's certain things about as you know as an african american if i talk about you know we had we got together and had dinner if i'm talking to another african american they know i'm probably eating soul food <laughs> there's just certain things you know that because
9: you grew up in this culture that are normal to you. And when you consider that only 5% of medical doctors and clinical psychologists in this country are Black, it's very hard to find someone who understands you culturally. So, how do you solve that? One of the ways
4: is we need to establish early pipelines. So, we need to start it from middle school, we need to start it from high school, because a lot of other races are getting their legs up from these high school programs that are already geared to math and science and they feed into college. And by the time you're a freshman in college, people already need to know that they're going into medicine.
9: As for Sharonda Johnson, she is choosing to remember her father the way he was. My dad was strong. He was full of life. He was, you know, the life of the room.
1: That was my dad. So to think that, I mean, like my hero, the strongest person I know, To think that they would die this way
9: or anyway, you don't walk around thinking that. A small, socially distanced memorial service for her father at Dover Air Force Base near her home helped. She says she thinks her grief, like the grief of millions of others during the pandemic, will last for some time. Aaron?
5: ABC's Sherry Preston. It has been just 34 days since the country hit 400,000 COVID-19 deaths and now this new terrible mark of 500,000. World News Tonight anchor David Muir remembers some of them.
3: In Alabama, Alphonse A.J. Jackson was just 35 years old, a father to Olivia and Aria, his wife Ashley, on how she explained this to her daughters.
1: So, you know how granny's an angel? She's like, yeah. I said, well, daddy went to go be one, too. That's the cry that you don't want as a parent to hear.
3: In San Antonio, Mackenzie Gongora was just nine years old in the fourth grade.
7: She called me Aunt Dickie. It had like this little whimsical lilt to it. Like, it was like like a little fairy, like saying my name. She was everybody's best friend.
3: In South Carolina, Ashley Bennett. She had just given birth to Eliza, meeting her baby girl just once, touching her arm.
2: That's the only time she ever got to see her in person, which breaks my heart, because Ashley, being a mother was Ashley's favorite thing in life.
3: In California, Cindy and Ruben Trejo, they passed away together. Ruben, a counselor working the front lines. Their 22-year-old daughter, Brianna, now on her own.
4: I do have two angels. You know, my parents, they'll always be with me, and I feel it.
3: Theodore Ted Lumpkin was a Tuskegee Airman, an intelligence officer during World War II, serving his country with hopes that it would make a difference back here at home.
5: We uh, really thought that our success would be very instrumental in uh, improving of uh, race relations in the, in the country.
3: He was recognized with a congressional gold medal. Ted Lumpkin was 100 years old. Sue Braley from Davenport, Florida, with her husband Dennis. Over 20 years, they were foster parents to more than 300 children, and they would go on to adopt seven of them.
2: She told me, Carrie, she said, it's not like I want to be a mom all over again. She said, that we have a home. We have love to give. So why not? She loved hard and she loved all
7: of us differently. She loved all of us how we needed to be loved.
3: And in North Carolina, Jamie Sites, he was a teacher and a coach for 25 years.
7: Jamie was just everything.
3: His wife, Liz.
7: He lit up the room. He was just such a force of happiness and compassion. And true goodness. And he was so fun
3: to be around. And Jamie, in his own words. 25 years of teaching, I'm so thankful and honored of the thousands
8: of students I've had the privilege to coach and teach. But mostly thankful for my immediate family, who I love and adore daily. Love you.
5: 500,000 dead, millions bereaved. The psalmist described a walk through the valley overshadowed by death, only to remind us that surely goodness and mercy shall follow. With vaccines and treatments, we can only hope to live those words, and that tomorrow is better than yesterday. I'm Aaron Katursky. You've been listening to a special presentation from ABC News.